Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Hello, hello. Welcome to Saturday Night and All the Things. I'm Monique Dusan. And I'm excited to be here. Your name is I'm excited to be here. I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom, and I'm excited to be here. Y'all, we are excited for real, for real, for real. This is our last show of 2021. That's right. Yes. The end of season three. Can you believe we've been doing this routine for three years? Can you believe I've been hoodwinked and bamboozled for three years? (laughs) Y'all, I don't even have on my glasses. I don't know if I'm looking at people or not. (laughs) Helping us on the show tonight and every night, the one and only Bob Bontrager. He's excited, too. Yes. <laughs> you guys, we are excited. And we are live. So join us in the chat. Now, the easiest way is on YouTube. Now, we try to get the Facebook comments, but but sometimes we don't see them until after the show ends because Facebook's weird. And their, their interface is a little clunky. So if you want to make sure to engage with us, go on YouTube. Yes. Yes, yes. And our moderators tonight are the one and only Laura Hartley and Allison Wardrip. Yes, Woo-hoo! yes. Thank you very much, ladies. Now I want to give Allison some special love tonight because I, I don't know what's happening with my, with my window there. I got two windows. Um, people might not know this, but Allison writes the show notes every week. She basically turns the show into a blog post. She's pretty amazing. We love her. I can't even believe and she's endured this all these shenanigans for like a year and a half. You've yes. been so faithful. Thank you, Allison. We yes. love you. Yes. All right. Now, oh my auntie Linda's there. Hey. Um, what have you been up to? What are you doing? I was just saying hi. Oh, okay. <laughs> Y'all, I can't I can't even say hi. It's well, I just like didn't know what you the podcast police coming for me. No, because sometimes you do stuff and I'm like, oh, okay. I don't I we're doing that. Like that's not on the script, but okay, cool. Um, what am I up to? What have you been up to? Yes, it's the last the last show. What have you been doing to prepare for the last show? What have you well what's led you to this moment? <laughs> Tell us. You're such a dork. Uh it's actually been very nice to be home for a couple of weeks. I didn't go with you to Alaska. Just like so nope, she did not. She did rest. not go with me to Alaska. And um, that's actually been very nice to be home with the family for a couple of weeks before we leave tomorrow again on a trip. So that that's been really good. Um, a lot of the things that we've been talking about is just kind of making goals for next year. Mm-hmm. I've been onboarding a lot of volunteers, interviewing new volunteers writing SOPs for volunteers. It's been a lot of office work. Standard operating procedures. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to getting back out on the road and being with people and having some fun and a little less admin work. Yeah. So that's been good. Awesome. Now you, you survived Alaska. I went to Alaska. It was so good. Now everyone's waiting to find out if you actually got to see the Northern Lights. No, it was a full moon and there was cloud cover. So you usually don't see them during a full moon anyway. So we had a full moon and cloud cover. So I'm just going to have to go back. Were you looking north? I was looking straight up. 
Kind of like Paul Abdul says, straight up. No, <laughs> you know, if you know that song, well, you know that song. <laughs> Sorry. Now, um, you, now you, ate, no, you ate moose steaks. I had, no, I, I had ground moose. Oh, okay. It was more like, um, like ground beef. Okay. I had ground moose. And then I had reindeer steaks. reindeer steaks, reindeer medallion steaks. Y'all, when I say that prancer, dancer, what are those, those little reindeers names? Rudolph. They, oh, all of them. I was just like, keep them coming. Yes, they were so good. And you went to the North Pole? Went to the North Pole, saw Santa. Santa Santa had attitude. Santa was like, she's aggressive. I was like, <laughs> excuse me, Santa? You don't know me. <laughs> yeah, Santa. Saw Santa and Mrs. Claus um, went and saw real life reindeer. Oh, wow. And so I didn't just see it on my plate, but I actually saw reindeer. Do you know that their antlers like fall out? I want to say like once a year. That's what I've heard. Yeah. It's it's not the it looks like a painful process. Oh. Yeah, I was like, oh, this isn't right. Um, what else did we do? We I spoke at Bethel Church in um, Fairbanks, Alaska, and no I no relation to Bethel Church in Reading. No relation okay. to Bethel Church in Reading, but I was um, excited because I got to speak with Thaddeus Williams, author of Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. CFBU board member, friend, and I was able to meet his wife, Jocelyn, who just like, she completed my trip. I was like, yes, yes, yes. I really so want to meet fun. her. So much fun. Who, find out who would marry Thaddeus Williams? Jocelyn. Yes. Yes. And Thaddeus is much better for it, I tell you. <laughs> he married up. He, yes, yes, yes. She's <laughs> awesome. Okay. So, so what are we doing? Ready? Are we going to talk about supporting the show? Okay. Yes. Let's do that. I haven't been here for a while. I know. Okay. This is the script over here. This Hi. Is, this is what we do. <laughs> Y'all, it's been a minute. All right. So uh, if you want to like to support the show, please uh, like on the show, like hit the thumbs up and make a comment. You can hit that share button or you can, you know, if you don't feel comfortable with sharing it publicly, that's okay. We understand. But uh, maybe send it to somebody that uh, the Lord brings to your mind that uh, might benefit from the, tonight's topic. And that is really the most popular way that people find out about our material is that a friend shared it with them. And this show is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity. Family 210 Clothing. And the Theology Mom podcast. Do we have a Family 210 graphic? Oh, we do. Old, old faithful there. The created terrain. Design. It is so true and speak truth to error. Yes. Everyone around culture now is saying speak truth to power, but sometimes we need to speak truth to, to error. You know, those in power may not be always lying or giving us misinformation. We need to speak truth to error. That's right. So you can go to family210.com and about $10 of every purchase goes to help us out here at the ministry. All right. So tonight on the show, did you know, here's a little fun fact for you. Okay. Did you know that Islam is the fastest growing religion on the planet? I want to say, yes, I did actually know this. Yeah. I learned this living in South Africa. Now, when you were in South Africa, you interacted with people who were Muslims quite a lot. Yeah. There was like very little tension, if any at all. Um, and so, yeah, I, it was just regular everyday interactions. I feel like in the school system, you would celebrate Christian religious holidays and you would celebrate Muslim religious holidays. It, it just was a way of life where everyone just kind of lived together. There wasn't a lot of animosity about it. No. Yeah. That's interesting. 
So many of us are having an increasing number of Muslim neighbors. Our kids have an increasing number of Muslim friends playing on soccer teams with kids from Muslim families. So we thought it would be great to bring on our friend Laura Powell and talk a little bit about Islam and how we can do outreach to them and focusing on the question, do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Because I know that that is a question that many people struggle with and they're not really sure how to answer. Yeah. So, hey, you're a woman of few words tonight. You know what? (laughs) You know what? You're just a little out of practice. I haven't been here for a while, but I mean, we don't need to just call out things. <laughs> okay. You, you don't embarrass me on the show. Okay, sorry. Okay, thank you. Sorry. Um, yeah, no, I haven't been here for a while, and I am feeling a little rusty. So I'm just gonna trust that you can take the lead on this. <laughs> Bless the Lord, won't he do it? Right. Um, yeah, but no, I'm excited. We and we got to meet Laura in person last month at the Women in Apologetics retreat. She yeah. actually serves with Women in Apologetics. And um, yeah, she actually was here at our house and um, yes. and Bob actually recorded her Women in Apologetics. Te- I don't know if it's actually the Women in Apologetics teaching or if it's her teaching. We can find out more about that. Yeah. But he did all of the videoing for that and um, it came out great. It's a class that that's offered through Women in Apologetics. Yeah. So it's going to be good. All yeah, right. Well, let's, let's get her on. Let's get Laura on the Zoom machine here. There she is. Hey, Hello. Laura. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, it's great Hello. to have you. So you're, yeah. sick, you're being so weird tonight. Okay. It's our last show. Forgive us, Laura. We don't normally act like this. Well, we do. But, you know, I was just trying to you know, make it seem a little less awkward. It's just been we're, we're a little rusty. All right. All right, Laura. So we've already told them that we just we met you, not just met you, but we actually got to meet you in person and not just through Zoom and social media and yeah. all of that at the Women in Apologetics retreat. So I feel like we know a little bit about you, but will you tell us a little bit about yourself? And how you became interested in studying Islam and reaching out to Muslims? Because that's a really interesting part of your story. I feel like that was embedded in the question. Sorry. It was right here on the cue sheet. <laughs> absolutely sure let's see I um, actually didn't hear the gospel until I was 21 years old and I um, was so hungry for the truth I canceled all my plans after my senior year of college to go to a ministry and discipleship program and basically learn Christianity study the Bible It was in Denver, and we had guest speakers from Denver Seminary come and teach us Old Testament, New Testament. We had pastors on staff, teachers on staff who taught us world religions, and uh, we went through the Book of Romans in a year. It was a really, really neat year, and at the end of that year, I just knew that I wanted to go to seminary. I wanted to learn everything I possibly could. I was on fire for the Lord, and... um, after that, so ever since then, I've been in full-time ministry, and uh, one of my early roles was as the training and member care consultant for Engineering Ministries International. Uh, through them, primarily, I traveled to a lot of different countries. I was interacting with a lot of different Muslim women all over the world in Egypt, Jordan, Uganda, Burundi, Afghanistan, India, 
Greece for the global refugee crisis there in 2015 and 16, I believe it was. And I was also studying Islam, especially when I was asked to train a team of engineers and their families who were moving to the Middle East to open an office there in 2007. And so I was taking a course in Islam. I was reading the Quran. I was trying to learn whatever I could to help train this team. And as I studied Islam, I realized it it was becoming clear to me why this is a false worldview and demonstrably false. And I had several Muslim friends by that time. I had memories of women I had really connected with. I had Muslim friends in my area who were like family to me. And I wanted to share the truth with them. I wanted them to know Jesus. I wanted them to be set free from the bondage of a false worldview. I wanted them to be set free from the fear of uh, uh, dreading eternity, dreading meeting God one day uh, face to face. And um, I wanted them to know the certainty of a glorious eternity instead of the fear that they had. I think that's so interesting because there's there's no better motivator, I always say, in learning more about our faith is encountering somebody that has a different point of view and then that causes you to learn something so that you can try to reach them. I mean, to me, that's such a much better motivation than merely just, well, I read some books. Like, reading the books is good. You got to have the information, but that motivation to study can wane. But if there's a person in front of you, that that really makes a difference and sometimes causes us to be willing to dive deep and go to uncomfortable places in our in our own thought. Absolutely. And there was one family in particular, a family of 10 uh, near my home who I was I was teaching the, the children on a daily basis, teaching them English. They had just moved from Afghanistan as uh, refugees. And I, so I was teaching the kids English that turned into English and math, but that turned into English, math, history, reading, and they became like family to me. I loved them and still do love them so much. And that was motivating my learning as much as I could possibly learn. And they were, they would ask great questions. They loved having spiritual conversations. I don't, we, we hardly got through a day without a spiritual conversation and I wanted to offer um, the best to them because I cared deeply about them. Wow, that's awesome. I love the fact um, in, in your story that you were an adult convert or a young adult convert. You know, <laughs> I, um, I've met a lot of missionaries who say, well, you know, when I accepted the Lord when I was like 10 and, um, you know, I really felt like I needed to, to be going overseas when I was like 16. But I love the the fact that this is something that happened or um, that you experienced as an adult being 21. It wasn't, um, you know, something that that you grew up thinking about. And then the passion that that was birthed from there just continued to spark and grow as you, you know, learned about your own faith, but then also um, be, were able to encounter others. Now, before we get too far deep down into your story or into um, the experience of Muslims and um, Islam as a religion. I was wondering if you can help us thread through some definitions. 
But I have a, a few definitions that I think would help to offer some clarity to me and to to others. Um, Islam, Muslim, Quran, Muhammad, and Hadith. And so we can just take it one by one. But um, I know that there are some that that I like will use and overlap and, you know, interchangeably. I'm not sure if I'm actually doing that correctly. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I will hear people often say um, the uh, the Muslim religion or, um, you know, Islam people, things like that. So these terms, I, I think, will be really helpful. As we've mentioned a couple of times, Islam is the religion itself, just like Christianity is the religion that that we believe is true um, or like Buddhism is a religion. Uh, Islam is the name of the religion. A Muslim is a person who follows Islam. So that would be like a Christian um, is a person who follows Christianity. A Muslim is a person who follows Islam. The Quran is the holy book of Muslims. And it is believed to have been revealed by God through an angel to Muhammad, and Muhammad gave uh, those revelations to uh, people, to, to followers, to converts. So the Quran is their holy book. Uh, let's see, Muhammad is the messenger. He uh, is the one who is believed to have brought the words of God. Uh, he's actually, though, not really comparable to Jesus. He's more comparable to the Bible than he is to Jesus, because Muhammad was not God incarnate like Jesus is God incarnate. Um, he's not Muhammad is not to be worshipped as Jesus is to be worshipped. He is just he's the messenger. He just presents, repeats, um, reveals God uh, through the words that he's been given. So he's really comparable to um, probably to the Bible. The Quran, on the other hand, is more comparable to Jesus, both being considered the eternal word of God. Oh, that's um, interesting. Hmm. That's super helpful. Yeah. I was, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, what yeah. about Hadith? Because that's a, that's a word I'm not familiar with. Right. Yeah. A lot of people aren't. And there, it's really important, though, to understanding Islam, because these are the traditions of Muhammad. These are collections of things he said and did. And the Quran commands Muslims to uh, obey what Muhammad did and said, to imitate him and everything. He is the excellent pattern of conduct. But there's nothing about him or his life or his words or his deeds uh, in the Quran itself. So you really have to refer to the Hadith, the collections of Muhammad's life and what he did and said in order to be able to imitate him and in order to be able to uh, obey the, the Quran's commands to, to follow him, to act like him, to imitate him. And um, so those are found, those, those are the Hadith. There are a bunch of collections of many, many, many volumes but there are a couple in particular that are considered the very best. And so um, a lot of the practices that are central to Islam actually come from the Hadith, not the Quran. For example, praying five times a day. That's, a, that's an important practice in Islam. 
but that's not to be found in the Quran anywhere. You need the Hadith to know that uh, that Muslims are to pray five times a day. Hmm. Now, when you say that um, that Muhammad is the one that they kind of look to for the example of how to live. Were there things or are there things that Muslims may disagree with regarding Muhammad or is that even allowed? Well, there are a lot of things that Muslims who are alive today would disagree about. Um, but a lot of that comes down to uh, the fact that a lot of Muslims are not familiar with all of what Muhammad did and said, they're not really encouraged to read and understand the Hadith. They're encouraged to rely on their leaders and their leaders are often very heavily influenced by their culture. So you're gonna find a lot of differences among Muslims throughout the world. And, um, and you will find differences among Muslim leaders who some will say, well, that isn't um, really a reliable Hadith or saying, um, tradition. So we don't follow that one as carefully, or we don't follow that one at all. Whereas others might look at the same hadith and say, well, um, but it's, it's, you know, it's right here in, in our oldest, most trusted sources, the scholars who have identified which were the most reliable hadith have said this is reliable, so we should follow it. So there are a lot of reasons why there are differences, and there are certainly major, major differences. I, I would, I, what I found is that the differences among Muslims throughout the world are, are far more significant than the even the differences among Christians. And there are certainly and obviously some uh, some important differences um, and a whole bunch of in, insignificant uh, or I would say maybe less significant differences among Christians. Um, that is even more present in Islam. That's interesting. So when we think about the unique relationship that Christianity has with Islam. I mean, I know that, you know, as we're trying to answer the big question of do Christians and Muslims worship the same God, I'm thinking, you know, part of beginning to answer that question is looking at the historical relationship, or at least the claim of a historical relationship between Christianity and Islam. So, you know, help us you know, walk us through some of that as to how they're kind of historically connected. Yeah, that's a great question, because actually, originally, Muhammad claimed to be the greatest and the final prophet of Judaism and Christianity. He was claiming that he was fulfilling biblical prophecies, that he was the uh, the awaited one prophesied in the uh, in the Old Testament, in the Torah and the Gospels, um, he said that he taught that he was completing the message by uh, coming to bring the same message that had been already given to the Jews and the Christians. So um, it was only after the Jews and the Christians rejected him as a prophet that he began to oppose them and he began to teach um, a lot of very um, antagonistic teachings toward Jews and Christians, and especially toward the Jews. Uh, the Quran itself actually affirms the scriptures, the, the Torah and the Gospels and the Psalms 
as revelation of God, as the revelation of God, as holy scriptures. And in fact, the Quran actually says that the Torah, the Psalms, the, the Gospels, they're from God and the words of God can never be changed. So the Quran affirms perfect preservation of our scriptures, which is something that we don't even claim. You know, we look at all the thousands of manuscripts and um, and see tremendous continuity um, and you know, we'll, we'll say, well, this, this sentence wasn't in the oldest manuscripts. And so, you know, there, um, and we'll put that in our Bible. They, the, the Quran actually affirms not only that the Bible is the word of God, but that uh, also it was perfectly preserved. So um, the Quran claims to have been a confirming book for the Arabs for those who spoke Arabic and needed the truth in, in that language, and especially for those who were in and around Mecca. So that's the claim of the Quran, although most Muslims I've interacted with don't know this um, and, and just don't have any idea what to say when I ask them, you know, what they do with those verses. So the the Quran- Well, just, just to, I just wanna make sure that point doesn't blow by mm -hmm. people, because that sounds right. really, really important. I mean, because, you're telling me some things I haven't heard before. So I want to restate them and make sure I'm understanding because if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying is that Muhammad at first claimed that he was in the tradition of Judaism and Christianity he was the, the last and the greatest and final prophet. And so it sounds like he was hoping to kind of be a continuation of Judaism and Christianity. But then when they didn't, accept him in that office then that's when the the hostility kind of turned toward christians and jews am, am i understanding that correctly yes that's exactly right that's exactly now would, right would the average muslim know that would they be aware of that dynamic well uh not really they would they believe that the Torah, the Psalms, and the Gospels are a part of their tradition, that they were the words of God, but they, and that they were revealed by God, they were authoritative, they were reliable, but they believe, the majority of Muslims today, believe that our scriptures have been corrupted, and that's why there are so many differences in our scriptures versus the Quran, because ours have been corrupted. Is but, it just like corrupted by by the passing down like of tradition or um, corrupted by man and, you know, like the handling of it? Or is it more like, like about motives that there were like motives to actually change yeah. the scripture? Yeah, both actually, both. Okay. And, it, and it depends on who you're talking to. And um, some people will name one of those two. Some will name both of them. And okay. so, yeah, a lot of Muslims believe that it was an intentional act very, very early on. A lot of Muslims will point to the Apostle Paul and say that he changed the whole message. And that's why the Bible contradicts the Quran today. Um, others will say, yeah, just everybody knows that the Bible has been changed. It's been corrupted, but they won't be able to cite any time or evidence or place that's that's my general uh, uh, response from Muslims is they'll say, well, just everybody knows this or it was early on or yeah, it, it was probably the, the most 
um, information I've been able to get from Muslim friends is um, that they believe it was the Apostle Paul or someone else very, very early on. But um, for the most part, people will say, well, it's just common knowledge. Everybody knows the Bible has been corrupted and changed. So now I'm going to give my my regular pitch for people is so be so helpful if lay people would learn some basic things about textual criticism and how the scriptures were were preserved and copied and transmitted because this is a very similar line of thought that I when I engage with people who are in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints mm -hmm. they make very similar arguments about the corruption of the scriptures and then when I try to ask for specifics and when did this happen, it's kind of the, the answer I'm given is, well, it's just always been that way, you know, from the beginning. And so having some basic knowledge in textual criticism can help to um, help to answer this this type of objection. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's yeah. And it's also to the tremendous disadvantage of Muslims that um the quran was revealed in the seventh century and affirms repeatedly the uh authoritative um divine uh nature of our scriptures that have been perfectly preserved so in the seventh century the the quran is being revealed and and god is supposedly saying through moses that um, anybody who has access to the Gospels must obey them, must judge by them, must stand firm upon them. And yet our biblical manuscripts uh, that exist today are from far prior to the seventh century. Right. So if they were, if the scriptures, uh, the biblical scriptures were reliable in the seventh century, when the Quran was revealed, they are certainly reliable today. That's, that's such a good point, looking at um, the time frame and how long that our scriptures have been reliable and even the preservation of our scriptures. Now, um, when we think about the, the Christian God and when we think about like the Muslim God or Allah, I, when I was in South Africa, I would hear a lot that it was the same God. They just had different names. So I remember like very clearly a conversation with a Muslim woman who, you know, would trace things back to Abraham and say, well, you know, before Abraham, like it was, we, it was the same religion. We had the same God. How, I think this, this misconception is kind of growing even now. How do you respond to it? And, you know, what would you say? Like, it, was it the same God prior to, or is it different God? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I hear that a lot as well. And this seems to be something that, Muslims, when they're in the minority in a culture like in the United States, they like to try to draw as many similarities as possible. They like to project the idea that we just worship the same, we worship the same God and there are just very, very minor differences like at, in our different, in our different denominations, for example. But the answer is, is unequivocally, no, we do not worship the same God as Muslims. And I'll give you an analogy. Um, okay, my name is Laura Powell, right? So um, it's kind of common 
certainly not an uncommon name. Uh, so let's say there are two different people who say that they know Laura Powell, but they describe her, each person describes the Laura they know so incredibly differently, so foundationally differently, with such different characteristics, priorities, um, passions, loves, um, hate, you know, um, that you eventually realize, okay, so we might, this, this, these people might both be called Laura, but these are clearly two different people we're talking about. And that is really the case with the God of the Bible and the God of the Quran. When we look at the nature of God in the Bible, and then we look at the nature of God in the Quran, we see that we cannot possibly be talking about the same being. They are just far too different in every significant way. And in fact, the, uh, in some of the ways that the Quran um, has Allah uh, or God describing himself, those are similar ways that the Bible describes uh, Satan. So these are, they're, they're dramatically different. They cannot possibly be the same being. That's helpful. I, I just did a quick search on Facebook. Sure enough, there's a lot of Laura Powell's. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> on, on Facebook. Yes. And they're yes. not all, the, they're not all you. There's, <laughs> there's a that. lot of them. And so, um, so that's, that's a helpful, helpful analogy. Maybe we can just unpack a little bit more about some of these differences between the God of the Bible and the God of Islam. That might be helpful if we could give a few specifics for people. Yeah, absolutely. So just regarding the nature of God, uh, the God of the Bible is relational. The God of the Quran is not at all relational. So um, Yahweh is relational in that um, he has existed eternally as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He walked with Adam and Eve and spoke with them and was, was with them in the Garden of Eden. He came in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity came in the flesh as a man, Jesus, to um, uh, display God to his people, to also die for his people, um, but so that we could know him, so we could know him, the people who, who um, lived at his time could know him personally and intimately, even physically, so that those who, who were yet to come would know him uh, spiritually know him as we read about him and look forward to knowing him even closer and more personally face-to-face uh, -face on the new earth. And so we see uh, God being relational, being with us um, personally um, in, a, in, in a, an up-close and uh, personal relational way on the new earth. The God of Islam is not a trinity. He has been alone and very content to be alone for all eternity past until he created Adam. And people are his slaves, according to the Quran. They are not his children. They cannot become his children. People exist to serve him as his slaves. Uh, another difference is that the God of the Bible, uh, well, similarly, the God of the Bible wants to be known, and, but the God of, of the Quran cannot be known. Yahweh resides with his people. He calls us into relationship with him. He com his commands are a reflection of his character. So as we are getting to know his commands, we are getting to know his character. 
Allah's commands um, can be, his commands can be known, but that's as much as we can get to know him. We can't, they are not reflections of his character. His commands are not reflections of who he is and he himself cannot be known. His, uh, the God of the Quran reveals commands that are somewhat whimsical. They're not rooted in his character at all. And so really, even by getting to know his commands, we're not getting to know him any better. He's just saying, okay, well, I have the power. So you, my slaves, do what I say. And let me just evaluate how good you are at obeying me. That's so interesting because when I think about, for example, I just finished a teaching series on justice uh, Mm -hmm. on my podcast. And one of the points that I made each time is that to understand justice, we have to understand that it flows out of the very character of God. And so because God is just, he wants us to reflect his character and to act and live and order our lives according to his principles of justice. So that, that to me is like a tangible example of exactly what you're saying is that we can't understand anything about love or justice or mercy without first understanding that these are concepts that are rooted and grounded in the very character of God himself. He defines them. He lets us know what mercy looks like. He lets us know what love and justice look like. So that sounds like it's quite a bit different in in Islam. Absolutely. Yes, it's it's very different. And again, that um, is seen in how different Muslims in different cultures have very different understandings of what uh, God is like uh, based on how their culture defines love or justice or things like this. Um, they, uh, they really don't get to see God in the flesh or um, God's character um, in action throughout their, their scriptures. They, they really just have a rule book and uh, which really isn't intended to be understood even um, all that much it's really intended to be repeated. So the value, the, the value of the Quran is repeating the sounds that Allah makes. Arabic is the language that Allah speaks. It's the only language he speaks. And because Allah speaks those sounds, um, humans gain points with him when they speak those sounds and speak them correctly and repeat the sounds. There really is very little uh, emphasis on understanding what those words mean. So that's uh, yet another difference. So when we're thinking about these differences so far, you've given us two of them, I think is one is the relationality of mm-hmm. God toward his creatures. And then secondly, we talked about his desire to be known and, and to have uh, the, the nature of his character and, and what that is connected to the, his commands Mm-hmm. So maybe you can unpack a couple more for us. Yeah, I have a question though oh, first. Oh, you do? Okay. So, and it's been like brewing in my mind ever since you said slaves. I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> <laughs> what, Lord? Mm-hmm. Um, how does this impact free will? Like, you know, as a Christian, I submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
when I hear the word slave, it doesn't seem like they like a Muslim would have much free will in their submission. Or maybe I'm just thinking about it the wrong way. I wonder how um, you're looking at me like, how did she get this question? No, I'm just listening. because <laughs> um, I haven't thought of it. I'm just wondering, like, what is their their thought about free will and participation or, you know, if if Allah doesn't have relationship with his people, you know, if I choose to be disobedient, then, you know, is there like a punishment an eternal punishment for me then? I don't know. It just made me think of, of the idea of free will. Yeah, that's great. It's such a great question. And not a lot of people make that connection. But Thank you. you're absolutely right that uh, it, it does impact free will. The short answer is there is really uh, no concept of free will within Islam. Muslims believe uh, Islam, I'll say Islam teaches since there's such a, a variety of, of beliefs, although um, I think all, all the Muslims I can think of hold to this. Islam teaches that Allah determines everything. Everything has been determined. Everything you say, everything you do. Um, the Quran says that Allah deceives people, that he um, he tempts people, that he tricks people into not um, following or obeying the truth. He causes people to sin. He leads people astray. And so Muslims really do not have a sense of any sort of um, uh, free will at all, but they do have responsibility for whatever Allah has determined for them. And so um, you, you'll, I've seen a lot of inaction, passivity, fear that they believe they can do nothing about except just dread whatever Allah has for them. There's, a, there's really very little sense that they can do anything different than whatever Allah has been, has determined that they will do. And so that's just the way it is. It's very, very hopeless. Wow. That makes me ask a whole level of other questions this that we can't the, get into. This isn't the theology show, but I will say that that's interesting to me because even like. I'm taking offense at that. That's okay. Um, the, even when I was a Calvinist, I didn't believe in that. Like that's hardcore determinism. And Right. ought to be differentiated from, um, you know, reformed streams of our own faith. And so mm -hmm. that's, that's a fairly deterministic perspective. And, and if I'm honest, like in my emotions, that just makes me a little bit sad, but okay. So we're still unpacking. We're still on the question of, you know, outlining differences between the God of Islam and the, the, the God of Christianity. This is helpful because even though he might have, like you said, the analogy of the same name, the characteristics are very different. So we know that these are different entities, different gods, if you will. So mm -hmm. maybe you could give us a couple more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the God of the Bible loves his creation, including the people he has created, whereas the God of Islam has no love for the disobedient. Um, the God of the Bible um, well, I'll, I'll just say the Bible tells us to love our enemies that we may be like our father in heaven who sends rain and sunshine on both the good and the evil. 
So God loves and provides for his, for people. Um, he also, while we were yet sinners, sent his son to die for us. So he initiates the, the relationship. He loves us enough to die for us while we are still sinners. The God of Islam only loves those who are first obedient to him. So this is a huge difference. Um, he, he leads people astray. He deceives people. And he does not have any love whatsoever for those who are disobedient. In fact, if you look up the word love in all of its occurrences throughout the Quran, um, a, a great many of those times that you see the word love, it will be about the people who Allah does not love. Um, whereas love is really a central characteristic of the God of the Bible. Uh, another characteristic of the God of the Bible is that he has suffered for his people. Uh, the second person of the Trinity left glory and left perfect intimacy with the Father and the Spirit to come to earth. He experienced every temptation as a man. He was rejected. He took on God's wrath um, for our sin, and he suffered crucifixion, uh, the most horrific death um, probably ever created by, by man. And he did that because of his love for us, and he was willing to suffer for his people. The God of Islam has never suffered in any way. He would not suffer for others. Suffering is beneath him, and he would not even suffer to rescue souls from hell. Uh, and just one, one more I'll, I'll point out, um, the God of the Bible re, re, uh, reveals himself as father. The God of Islam despises any association with fatherhood at all. Um, so so our Trini the Trinity, of course, consists of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God adopts us into his family when we uh, make the decision to follow him. And um, uh, by the way, I'll just mention that you know, I hear this a lot, that, oh, well, Muslims are our brothers and sisters. Um, they're, they're not our bro brothers and sisters in a spiritual sense, which is the ultimate sense. Um, they are image bearers. Uh, but they are not brothers and sisters in the family of God. Um, so the God of Islam taught that adopted sons are not real sons. He wants nothing to do with adoption. He wants nothing to do with fatherhood at all in any sense. It is true that there is a common misunderstanding among Muslims that God had sex with Mary and produced, um, uh, and produced Jesus and that that's actually what they're rejecting is the, the sexual relations between God and Mary. But in all of my experiences with Muslims, all of my conversations, even once we get that straightened out, they still continue to reject um, God as father in any sense of the word. He wants nothing to do with fatherhood. Uh, we are God's slaves, according to Islam. We are not his children in any sense of the word. Wow. So when we think about this question of, do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? The way you've broken it down there really makes it so clear that when you get into the details, no, these are obviously mm -hmm. two different. I hate using the word people because they're not humans, but it, they're two different entities, two different gods. And, and so only in the most superficial sense in saying that these were both, you know, in monotheistic religions, 
of worshiping one God, would they be the same? But when you immediately start unpacking just even the most preliminary details, it becomes very obvious that this is a different religion. I know a lot's impacting Monique over here on the denial of the family model because that and the, and that people are slaves like that just really hits right at the heart of, of your heart. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and I, gosh, it, this just harkens me back to South Africa so much in the conversations that I've had and um, how many Muslims would tie um, the Islamic tradition all the way back to um, Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael versus Isaac. And, you know, it, but the way that you break it down is just so clear. Like it, it, they, it's definitely two different gods. And um, at no time or point did did you know those two gods ever exist to be you know the same god at all. Right, right, exactly. So when we're thinking about God, like it's very clear to me that this is two different two different religions. Are there any other significant um, differences that maybe we should have awareness about mm-hmm. as we're engaging with um, our Muslim friends that, you know, like not only is the God different, but there's a few other things that we should be aware of, of significant differences between the two religions. Yes, definitely. In fact, the, the similarities, uh, I love that you identify them as superficial. That's the word I use a lot. Uh, it's really only the very most superficial uh, um, attributes of the two worldviews or religions that are the same. When you dig just a little bit below the surface, you, the, the differences are massive. So there is a huge difference in the nature of humanity, for example. Uh, so according to Christianity, people are created in the image of God. According to Islam, people are not created in the image of God. And this has massive implications, as you can imagine, for human worth and value, uh, for human dignity, for human rights. And, um, you know, people are not inherently valuable. They don't have inherent dignity or inherent rights. They are determined their worth and their value is determined by how closely they obey Allah. And this especially has terrible implications for women because Muhammad taught that women are deficient in intelligence, in common sense, and morality. Women are terrible at religion, he said, and um, we are ungrateful. We are the majority of the inhabitants of hell. And so if women are deficient in these things that Allah um, is so concerned with, and most of us are going to hell anyway, then we really, there's no basis for treating women with any sort of value or worth or giving them any sort of rights. And that's what I've seen throughout Uh, Muslim majority countries all over the world. It's been absolutely heartbreaking to see how women are treated, to see how women's lives have proceeded, how um, women are taught and told from birth up, how 
useless and worthless they are. They exist to have sex with men whenever and however men want. That's uh, from the Quran. Um, to women are men's fields to be plowed, however and whenever a man wants. And women do not have inherent value or worth, nor do non-Muslims. You gain some worth when you become a Muslim. Uh, well, before you move on, that's just such a powerful point. Like, I want to hit the pause button there for a minute, because I don't think many Christians understand the importance of the image of God. And it's not really taught a lot in our churches. It needs to be. Um, I have a 37 part series on my YouTube channel about the image of God and all of its theological implications. Um, and it is, it is a key pillar of our faith that humans have inherent dignity, value, and worth, mm -hmm. whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, that we are all created in his image now, that image has been marred by the fall. We live in a Genesis 3 world, but there is something still inherently valuable about the human person that sets us apart from all the rest of God's creation. Even the angels, it says in Psalm 8, that humans are a little lower than the angels. Angels and humans are not the same, and there are hierarchies in God's creation from the beginning. There's you know, God, the triune God, there's angels, humans, and we rule over the animals. So there's, there's hierarchy. That's part of the created order, but we need to reflect on the worldview implications of these ideas mm -hmm. that, that it affects our view of marriage. It affects the, our view of how men and women treat each other. And that once we come into Christ and we are brothers and sisters in the Lord, that also affects how we treat one another, even in our own marriages. So there's a lot to reflect on there. I don't want this very important point to pass people by, because when you come into a culture that doesn't have a society ordered with an assumption in mind that humans have inherent value, dignity, and worth, women won't be educated. You know, they won't have those same opportunities as men. They, they, they are more subject to abuse. They are more subject to uh, coerced marriages. I mean, so this is not just a theological point inside of a book. This has ramifications in how we live our lives. You know, I wanted to hearken viewers back to the podcast we did on, um, is Christianity like good news for women? Mm, you remember yeah, that? Yeah. Um, because we, it speaks to this very point. Yeah. Like why is Christianity out of all the world religions? Um, why is Christianity a better hope? Not just, you know, in regards to racial unity, but why is it a better hope for women? Why is is the gospel also a good news for women? And um, I think what you're saying, Laura, just is so profound and truthful um, as to why Christianity offers a better hope for women. It, because when we when we look into traditions like Islam, we see how there is such a degradation of women. And, um, you know, there's, there's no, like you said, dignity, value and worth for the woman. Yeah. Mm 
So, exactly. all right, you can go on. I just, I just wanted to make sure that we're really understanding and catching the significance of what you're saying there, Laura, because it's so exactly. important. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that you expounded on that. It is such an important point. And uh, I do absolutely agree. We need to be talking about this more in the churches and, um, and reflecting on it. Absolutely. You mentioned a Genesis 3 world. So Islam also teaches that there was no fall. There's no imputed sin. There's no um, brokenness that uh, no sinful nature, nothing like that. So Islam teaches that humans are, they can be kind of weak and forgetful at times, but they have the same nature as Adam had at creation. No, so no sinful nature. So they, um, do not see Jesus then as a, as a savior. They don't need a savior. They don't see Jesus as deity. Um, he is just a prophet, according to Islam. The Quran teaches that Jesus did not die by crucifixion, uh, nor was he killed in any way. Uh, and so therefore he, rose, he did not uh, rise from the dead because he never died. He was just taken directly up to heaven, according to um, most Muslims. Uh, it was just that Allah made it appear as if Jesus was crucified and killed. But that was one of those deceptions, one of those tricks of Islam, of uh, Allah. Uh, so they have a different not. God. They have a different Jesus. Mm -hmm. So even though they say they affirm Jesus, mm -hmm. it's really somebody else, you know, yes. that, that that they're talking about. And we're starting to get a lot of questions. So we're not going to get to every question on Islam tonight. But, but we this, have to answer that one question because I have a question. Okay, but but this is a good time to mention Laura's class that is part of Women in Apologetics, uh, the Islam Foundations class. It's a Women in Apologetics Academy course. Now, the registration isn't open right now, but it's coming again soon. So we wanted to highlight it before the end of our season here so that people can be on the lookout for it. Make sure you're subscribed to women in apologetics. You're following them on social media. So you'll know when it opens, Laura's the instructor mm -hmm. for the course. And so we're just giving you like an appetizer tonight. So if you find this interesting and you really appreciate Laura's, um, just so careful and clear way of leading this conversation, you're going to want to get connected with the Islam foundation course, especially if you have Muslims in your life that you want to reach out to in your community, in your friend group, in your kids' friend group. This is a great equipping tool. So go check that out from our friends at Women in Apologetics. Yes. Okay, sorry, Laura, I, I interrupted you. I just... No, it's great. It's great think, because with the, the Islam Foundations course is 20 lessons, and we're not going to be able to go into nearly that yeah. kind of depth uh, and thoroughness tonight. So I love it. I love it. Um, so now, yeah. Go uh, ahead, Monique. I was, I was just going to say, how would you encourage um, Christians who are friends of Muslims to engage their friends? And especially on some yeah. of these differences. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing that I think is really important to mention is that Muslims are usually very willing to engage in spiritual conversations, engage in debate, uh, disagree without harming the relationship. In fact, 
a lot of my Muslim friends have told me that I was an acquaintance until we started talking about these types of issues. And now I'm a family member to them. And so like the opposite <laughs> of social justice people. <laughs> right. So, so conversations are allowed. That's good to know. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, not just, um, not just uh, subtle, soft hints at disagreements, but passionate disagreements. Um, there have been many times when I've been invited over to dinner and they, uh, my friends will invite their Muslim family members over and they clearly just can't wait to debate. And we go at it passionately. And at the end of the conversation, you know, they'll give me a fist bump and be like, are you available for more tomorrow? So it is, it is not the taboo that we are kind of taught it is in the West to talk about uh, issues that we disagree about. And um, uh, in fact, this is often a very important part of the relationship if you, if you want to actually have a, have a, a close relationship with, with a Muslim. Um, there are some exceptions, of course, but you know, you'll find out pretty quickly. <laughs> um, I want to, I want to ask, uh, I'm going to kind of move us along here a little bit mm -hmm. so, because our, we're already an hour into it, but I'm just wondering like kind of the flip side of Monique's question is, you know, like what are some common mistakes that you see Christians make when they're mm -hmm. engaging with Muslim friends? Like, you know, if you're going to do this, that's great, but maybe don't do it this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the things I would say is that Christians can um, create unnecessary barriers. So for example, Muslims believe that it is a ticket straight to hell. If you ever drink a sip of alcohol, if you uh, watch uh, sexual movies, like movies with even kissing in it or movies with certainly with, um, with inappropriate sex scenes in it. If you dress in a way that shows a lot of skin, that is indicative of a really shady character. And so you're not really taken very seriously in your spiritual beliefs if you are um, you know, drinking in front of your Muslim friends, watching movies that are objectionable, dressing like um you know you're laying out by the pool and so I, there is a time and a place for uh conversations about these types of things uh i i've had conversations with muslim friends about um all of those all of those issues and uh it, it's just that we don't want to create unnecessary barriers to even forming the relationship in the first place so i would say don't don't erect unnecessary barriers. Another common mistake is a lack of preparation. We don't know the basic tenets of Islam. We don't know the basic arguments against Islam. And this is really, there are a few basic arguments that anybody can learn. I've taught to middle schoolers um, that are, are quite straightforward and that every Christian really, really ought to know. And so um, we, we really need to have a little bit of preparation. We don't need to all become 
scholars who get PhDs in Islam or such things, but there are a few arguments that, that everybody should know. And we should know why Christianity is true because Muslims are going to object to Christianity. They're going to object to the Trinity and say it's illogical. They're going to say the resurrection never happened. Uh, they're gonna say Jesus was never crucified. They're gonna say your scriptures have been changed. So how do we respond to these things? And these are, these are not necessarily unique challenges made only by Muslims. These are challenges that are made by um, some of them by atheists, agnostics, uh, Mormons, progressives, yeah, progressive Christians. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So we need to be prepared. We need to know some apologetics. And another common mistake is um, to 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 avoid um, being bold and passionate and just try to be nice and and love people into the kingdom. This is actually seen by most Muslims as weakness. If we are scared to talk about our faith, if we're hesitant, if we're soft and we're passive, that's seen as evidence that we really don't actually believe what we are saying. But when we're bold and we're passionate and we want to get into it with them, they see that as, oh, wow, this person might actually believe what she's saying. That's so interesting. It's such an upside down way of thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and it, I think one of the number one questions we get at the ministry is, how do I have this really hard conversation with somebody and never offend anyone? And yes. and if they have no reaction whatsoever, and it's like, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure yeah. that's possible. But but this is much more like if you really believe this, then they want to see that that boldness to to some degree. Right. Absolutely. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So yeah. maybe what we need to do is think about having Laura on again, next season and talking about some of these basic arguments and maybe she can walk us through some of these things to really, you know, help us kind of take the next step here. You trying to say, I can't ask my question. (laughs) I don't know what your question is. I'm not a mind reader. She knows she knows my question. I don't know. Are we talking about the bean pie guy? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) So listen here. I grew up in South LA and in South LA, there would be Muslim people, usually men. I've actually I've never seen a woman do it. Selling bean pies on the corner, they always have a little bow tie on. They sell them in a little pink box, and this was my childhood. But they were Muslims. And then when I moved to South Africa, I was like, oh, okay, like there's a difference. Are there religious differences between like the bean pie Muslim that I saw on the corner in the hood? Versus like the Muslim that I would see in like a more Muslim country. Can you help me out? Because I'm trying to understand this so much. Yeah, you know, I'll share what I know, but I have to admit, I've never met the bean pie Muslims on the street. So I'll have to. Girl, when you come to L.A., I need to take you. (laughs) I would love that. We could have some great conversations with them, too. I would love to ask them some questions. That'd be great. We'd have a fun conversation. We're not bringing home no bean pie. I I was about to say we could bring home some bean pies, but I guess not. Uh, So there you go. But yes, uh, I'm sure there are, are significant differences. As I mentioned earlier this evening, there are there's a wide variety of beliefs among different Muslims. And I'm willing to guess that the Muslims you saw growing up probably did not know the teachings of the Quran and the Hadiths. Um, They are only supposed to be read in classical Arabic. And nobody today 
speaks classical Arabic as their natural language. So you really have to go to school for that. Only 20% of Muslims speak any form of Arabic at all, like modern Arabic. And that is, it's, it's quite different from the classical Arabic of the Quran. The Quran has other extremely challenging uh, barriers to reading and understanding it. Like I said before, it's really not intended to be uh, necessarily read and understood. It's intended to be recited. Uh, Quran means recitation. But um, the, the Muslims in Muslim majority countries, like for example, Pakistan, uh, oftentimes are uh, surrounded by leaders, teachers, who have actually studied the Quran in the classical Arabic, who do read the Hadiths, who know about the life of Muhammad and their culture does not change Islam as much as Islam changes and impacts the culture. So it really depends on where you are, who you're talking to, how familiar people are with the teachings of the Quran and the Hadith, um, what their family influences are. And uh, so, so chances are the, the Muslims you saw on the streets uh, um, probably were not in madrasa school, you know, or um, really all that concerned with the original teachings. They, they may have even been from the nation of Islam, which has significant differences. Um, but is has been a, I think it's a little more prevalent in the United States, uh, and uh, and there are significant differences. So if you go to to Pakistan, um, you're going to see very little interaction between Muslims and Christians. Christians are um, outcasts. They are not to be interacted with. They hold the lowest jobs of the low. They're the street sweepers. Um, and it's just going to look really, really different from a place like LA, where there's a lot of integration. There are some different beliefs. Um, the, the Quran actually forbids Muslims from being friends with Christians and Jews. Uh, the Quran teaches that Christians and Jews and polytheists are the worst of all creatures, all creatures, not just the worst of humanity, the worst of all creatures. If you've ever seen the way a Muslim reacts um, when they see a pig or a drawing of a pig, uh, and then you think, okay, well, Christians and Jews are worse than pigs. Um, we're the worst of all creatures. You'll get an idea of how we are viewed by people who actually know those teachings. But again, a lot of Muslims do not know that teaching. They don't know that they are commanded to, um, to fight and kill non-Muslims. They don't usually know that they are commanded to uh, cut off the fingers and the toes of non-Christians, behead them, crucify them, um, steal from them, all of these terrible, terrible um, commands that are found in the Quran and are demonstrated in the life of Muhammad. The majority of Muslims don't know these things. Um, and it, it really is not safe to assume they do, but it's a hard topic because uh, Muslims are also taught in the Quran to 
be to deceive um, and lie to non-Muslims about their intents. They're told to not make friends with us unless they need security from us, unless they're in the minority and they need friendship for um, you know survival purposes or you know to get along in the culture, to get a job or things like this. And they're told that that if that's the case, then they need to just make sure they hate us in their hearts. So it's mm. it's it's really quite disturbing, you know, and it breaks my heart as I reflect on those. I don't think that most of my Muslim friends in the United States have any idea about those types of teachings. I don't think they hate me in their heart or that they're being disingenuous. But that is what the Quran tells Muslims to be like and how to interact with Christians. So the bean pie Muslims are probably nation of Islam, nation of Islam Muslims, which would be one of the many varieties that mm-hmm. Laura's talking about is that there's no, no matter where you go, you're going to see different differences. But I think that we Laura, probably shouldn't call them bean pie Muslims. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it like that. It just, <laughs> now that I'm, now that I hear it, I'm like, Oh, I didn't mean to say that like that. It, that but didn't but the, right. the, the, I think Laura's point is really important that don't assume just as when I encounter even Christians, I don't assume that they understand all of the beliefs that are entailed in our own religion. So when you encounter a Muslim, don't assume that they know all the finer details of the Quran because they probably don't read Arabic and they probably aren't even aware of everything that is in the Quran. So yeah. I will give a shout out to my mother, Pauline, who is watching on Facebook and said, Kiki, that was a long time ago. Then they were selling those bean pies, honey. <laughs> Kiki. <laughs> yes, I can hear her now. But mom, I was just there a couple weeks ago and I know that they were selling them. So they still got the pink boxes. They still have the pink boxes. Yes. Okay. Her comment is... I've got to see that. That (laughs) She said, that was back in the day. They still sell them pies. Mom, I love you. (laughs) Okay, let's go over to YouTube. There's one comment that I want to get us to talk about, Laura, before we let you go. There's been quite a a lot of conversation in the chat about, wait a minute. If this is what Muslims believe about women, how does that fit with the current cultural value on social justice and intersectionality and vaulting feminism and women's rights. Like, why don't we hear more feminists and social justice people speaking out against Mm -hmm. Islam? So there's some, there's there, people are feeling like there's some cognitive dissonance here between our culture and how like you can never say anything bad about Islam and then feminists and what they're saying about us as Christians. So there's a lot of, a lot of confusion. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, Laura. Yeah, that's a great and significant uh, observation for sure. It is, it, it always amazes me that the social justice uh, people are um, partnering with with Muslims um, that that these two are not completely at odds with each other, and they tend to it, it. My 
suspicion is that they kind of feel like they need each other right now to promote a common agenda, basically to uh, to do away with Judeo-Christian values and to reject Christians and Christianity. They have kind of a common enemy and they are pairing up to um, uh, to dispel those values. But at some point, they're going to come at odds with one another because they are like feminism is completely and totally at odds with Islam in every way. It's really just unbelievable to me that 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 they are so frequently uh, united. It also demonstrates to me that some of these people who say that uh, that women's rights are the most important thing in the world to them are not being honest because if they were, they wouldn't be so worried about Christians and Christianity. They would be objecting loudly to Islam. Um, in fact, there are several women who have done things like, uh, uh, like led the women's march in DC, for example, um, who have, who, say they're Muslims, they go up on stage, they get the microphone, and they start telling outright lies about Islam and how great it is for women and how great it is for freedom and how Muhammad was such a, an advocate of women's rights and how, um, how, how wonderful it is for feminism. If you're a feminist, you should consider be, becoming a Muslim. This is absolutely and completely untrue you you just see the exact opposite all throughout the quran all throughout the life of muhammad and so i really think that i think that this is a spiritual battle in a lot of ways that there is a lot of deception going on all around and that um at some point you know, even if um, even if Judeo-Christian values are pushed out of the public square, if Chris, if all the Christians are silenced, um, they're gonna they're gonna come to a head where they where feminists and um, and Muslims are going to be completely at odds, and it's not going to end well for somebody. I agree with that. I think when I look at intersectionality, or um, when we look at oppression and and or who is the the oppressor we see christians as being you know the oppressors toward any other religion or anything considered a religious minority and so when you get um islam and then you get feminism where um women are considered the 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 oppressed group toward men, I do think you're right. Like they have to kind of bind together because they're two oppressed categories. I also think that people don't really know, just like you said earlier, like they don't really know what's written in the Quran. No one's out there reading the Hadith. So they don't know all of these things. So now it's like, I can create a narrative that sounds really good and coerce you into Islam or coerce you into believing what I believe based on the fact that we are two oppressed groups. But I do think that one is going to eat the other. 
Like it, it's gonna, it's like a snake eating its own tail. It's gonna, it's not gonna go anywhere in the end. In the end, one of them is gonna have to choose who is going to be the oppressed group and who's gonna be the oppressor. It's gonna come out in the wash, so to speak. Another thing that we see in the black community, and Candy's bringing this up, is that we're seeing a, a surge of conversions in the black community toward Islam as a reaction to like, well, I'm going to reject Christianity because that's a white man's religion. Mm -hmm. That's the religion of slave owners. Mm -hmm. And so it it kind of a protest, I'm going to convert to Islam. But that is a bit problematic too. Like, I'm not sure that, that that's necessarily the best exchange. It's extremely problematic because another thing that most people don't know is that Muhammad owned and traded and sold black slaves. Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, owned and sold black slaves. And he taught that black slaves were worth half of what his Arab slaves were worth. And he had a very, very low view of black people. He called black people names regularly, said they were raisin heads. He said that Satan looks like a black man. If you want to know what Satan looks like, just look at any black man. There, there you have it. Satan. Uh, Monique's called, speaking all, she's, this is new information for her. She's yeah. trying to process. Yeah. He, he taught that um, uh, anyone who called him, who called Muhammad black, was to be killed because that was just the biggest insult to be that you could imagine was to be called a black person. So you were to be killed if you called Muhammad a black person. And if you read through the Hadith, you will see this major emphasis on Muhammad as a white man. Um, Every individual body part of Muhammad's is listed as being extremely white part of it he had the whitest arms he had the whitest face the whiteness was everywhere his whiteness in his toes his whiteness in his thighs he was so white it was basically blinding um they really emphasize that he this was a white man and he owned black slaves sold them at half price because they weren't worth nearly as much as others and he had terrible things to say about black people um, again, not made in the image of God. I'm trying not to laugh, but I can't because of your face. I can't. I, I, I don't even know what to say. You know, but but Laura Hartley said it all. She just said, "Oh my." But here, okay. So Carrie asked a question, and we are way over time. Um, so maybe you can address it quickly. Carrie's question was, and Amy Burks, don't start. Um, it's on. It's on YouTube. Carrie's question is essentially that, but why is Islam growing as a religion? Why is it the fastest? Because you said this as soon as we opened up, you know, it's the fastest growing religion. Why? Who is jumping on board with this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I can answer that pretty quickly. Um, There are very few uh, opportunities for women to do anything other than have babies. Um, Women exist to have as many babies as possible. If they do have any value at all, it's in it's determined by the number of children they have for Muslim men, uh, the number of Muslim babies they have. 
uh, the average, like, well, I don't know what the exact average is, but I know that um, there are very, very high birth rates for Muslims, for Muslim women. Um, it's very common among my Muslim friends for them to have 10 children. Very, very, very common. Um, women are often married away at uh, um, as early as nine and expected to just start having babies as soon as they hit puberty. That's so sad. Uh, by the way, this number nine is not random. It comes from the age of Muhammad's youngest wife. He married a six-year-old and he started um, uh, having, well, statutory rape with her, um, conjugated the marriage when she was nine. And so he is the excellent pattern of conduct. And so women are, girls, little girls are married away at very young ages. You can conjugate the marriage with them when they're nine and they're expected to start having babies right away. Also, the penalty for leaving Islam is death. So if you, there, there aren't too many um, <laughs> uh, people who leave Islam because of cultural reasons. You have to be willing to lay down your life for what you believe in order to leave Islam. And so you'll see people with all different degrees of knowledge, understanding, conviction, commitment to Islam, who count themselves among the world's Muslims, because if they don't see anything worth dying for, um, to give up Islam for, they're not going to. So that's why high, high birth rates, no other opportunities for women, the penalty for leaving Islam is death. Uh, and even in cultures where that's not carried out, you are going to lose your entire community, your family, and uh, your identity and everything that you hold dear. You need to be completely ready to start over on your own, apart from everything and everyone you've ever known. Wow. Well, that's it. Yeah. That's a sobering, sobering to, to, mm -hmm. to think about and, and reflect on. So, and again, we want to remind everyone that not every Muslim might be aware of all of these mm -hmm. things. And so, you know, don't assume that, this is how every Muslim in America is conducting themselves. But this is, you might encounter the, these, yeah. these things. So but this is the real. This is the real. Mm -hmm. This is the real. Even if they're not aware of all of the um, aspects of their worldview, this is the real. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, exactly. and, but again, this is why um, Christianity is a better hope. This is why Christianity is better for women. It's better for humans because of the Imago Dei, because we are created in God's image and what all of that means yeah. for us as humans. Well, thank you, Laura. This has been an incredible conversation. Many good comments in the chat from people that found this very helpful. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. Thanks we'll for have to have you back. Yeah, we'd love, love to have that. you back. All right. You name the time. All right. All very right. good. Thank you, Laura. All right. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye. Okay. That, that was, was really good. That was. That was really good. We're going to have to have her back and maybe get some some pro tips on. Yeah. I, my mind is a little blown there at the end. That was, yes. That was, that was rough. Okay. Time for the Tweet of the Week. The Tweet of the Week. I think you were going to say something, but I was, you know, it's time. She, we got to keep going. I know. It's I knew late. she just cut me off because yeah, she's like, it's late. I want to go get food. All right. A great example of systemic racism is um, the, uh, the traditional evangelical approach to fundraising in which you ask 
uh, Christian staff workers to raise their own support. Okay, so I see that as systemic injustice, in spite of the fact that uh, there is, uh, frankly, our denomination does it, both for missionaries and for um, RUF, Reform University Fellowship. Uh, the reality is after 50 years of watching people do this, um, I, I never realized, in, in, in other words, it's not just African-Americans, but Hispanic and Asian-Americans, even Asian-Americans who've got a, had a couple generations of people in this country and everybody's a professional, they still can't raise their own support. It, it, it took me 50 years to realize that accumulated wealth in your family and friendship networks takes generations to develop, generations. So recent immigrants or African-Americans who've been here from the beginning, but who because of slavery, then Jim Crow laws, then redlining, then everything, is they've just, they've got no money in their networks. They just don't. And if you send them out there and say, raise your own support, they can't. So then what happens is in so many of these evangelical organizations, they basically are, because they can't do that, they never move up and, and really become uh, part of the power. And uh, has our denomination and our, you know, you know, participate in that? Yes, it still is. That's a pretty uncomfortable thing to say. Um, but the fact is that if we started to say, oh, guess, you know what? We're going to totally change that. We're going to fund everybody centrally. We're going to raise money centrally and then just pay all of our workers. Now, the reality is that we, it's much harder to raise money that way. And it's also, it takes more time and effort and all that. And so these mission organizations and denominations don't want to do it and they won't even be open to it, but it's, it's a version of systemic racism. Now, I don't know whether, whether everybody, my guess is a lot of people on your, on the call, if you, unless you've been involved in the evangelical world for a long time, don't even maybe know what I'm talking about, hardly. but every, but I mean, Anthony does and Susan and Jeff certainly do. And it's just a blind spot. And why can't we address that? Why can't we say, we're going to try to do something about that. You really could, frankly. I think there are, there are things you could do. So it's it's not like it, but you, unless you have the discussions, these things, most of us, especially us white people, just sort of, this is the way it's always been done. And I'm not a racist. So how could you call that systemic racism? Every time, I have to say, every time I ever bring it up, I just never get any response from anybody. People just say, oh, that's Tim's hobby horse. But it's a, if you're non-white and you've tried to raise your own support in one of these organizations, you know exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, to me, it was one of the things that proved the reality of, of the, 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 the hangover and just how deeply our past is affecting African-Americans now. You know, the whole idea that, well, that was in the past. And now, you know, it's, it's a level playing field. Get out there and work hard. You know, it, it, uh, that's gone in my mind. I began to realize, well, no, 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 it's. It takes generations for the, the, the playing field to become leveled, far more than we've had. All right. So the tweet of the week is the world famous Monique Dusan. That was just the, the introduction to that, the tweet of the week. That's the introduction to the tweet of the week. The tweet of the week is. Minorities can do all things through the white man who recognizes his participation in systemic oppression and empowers them. Philippians 413 TKV, Tim Keller version. I'm so done. I'm just so done. Like, I don't understand. I don't know who, I, I don't think that he thinks about this, honestly. 
I don't think that he really gives a ton of thought and research into this. I think he probably has a team of people who tell him you should say this or here, here's some stats that you can quote. Because if he was really doing his research, he would know about African-American missionaries. So George Lyle was the first black missionary who left out of America to, I want to say maybe India, but it was during the 1700s. You trying to tell me this man decided he was going to go around the world and be the first black missionary and systemic oppression wasn't, it didn't keep him back. Slavery didn't keep him back. Like, I, I, so at that time we we could go out and we could do things. And the, I mean, even during the time of slavery, there were black missionaries that went, there was a, a black woman missionary who was the only black missionary on her team that went down like to, to Hawaii and just, slavery didn't stop. Slavery to me was more of an issue than systemic oppression. But slavery didn't stop her. Systemic oppression didn't stop her. And somehow she was able to get funded. But now, 200, 300 years later, you try to tell me minorities can't can't get funded. We can't figure out how to be missionaries if we really wanted to. I served four and a half years in South Africa. The Lord provided. Maybe the Lord ain't calling you to, to be a missionary. Maybe you need to go ahead and reevaluate your situation. I'm so hot. I'm just like, you, you, um infantilize minorities and make us seem like we are the babies that must constantly be taken care of. Wait, we don't want to have white saviors. We don't want to have white saviors, but apparently he thinks he's better than me and must rescue me from my oppression. Susanna says this sounds insulting. It's not, it's degrading. It is, it is beyond like I can take an insult. But it is actually like the thought that you don't think that my brain works the same that, that yours does. You don't think that if I put my heart to something, I would be able to pursue it and do it. Or the Lord would provide. Yes, exactly. But we're asking the wrong questions. See, when this is the problem with critical race theory. It puts a lens up and then everything is done through the filter of race. How about we look at the fact that many people don't talk about black missionaries at all? We don't know about the history of black missions. I think if more people understood the history of black missions and black missionaries, people might be able to say, oh, look, I can do this. Or, oh, look, there 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 is a history of black missionaries. I can pursue this. Oh, maybe I should actually jump into that. But it doesn't have to be about systemic oppression all the time. It might not have anything to do with race at all. I could be wrong in saying, well, if we had even more information about black missionaries, it could be that black people just. We don't want to do it. That we just there are other things that culturally interest us more. It, it or could maybe be, uh, the Lord's not calling. Like you might think you have a call, but you don't, and that happens. Like sometimes you think you have a call and you can't raise the money, but that doesn't mean it's automatically a systemic. If you issue. feel like the Lord has called you to be a missionary, but you didn't only raise seventy five cents in three months. You might need to go back and talk to the Lord. Lord, are you sure? Lord, is there something with me? Should I be doing something different? If you've only talked to two people in the last year about your missionary journey to Nepal, you might have other issues at hand. But no, what does Tim Keller do with all of his platform? He gets up here and he infantilizes minorities, black and brown people, and says, well, they can't do it. And it's taken me 50 years to understand the fact that they can't do it. How smart are you if it took you 50 years to figure this out? Like, I don't know. And I'm really trying to rein myself back in because the fact that you think that as a white man, you need to tell me or to tell others what we cannot do to me. I'm just like, I'm so done. 
I'm so done. And who are who are the people who are over him? Is he, does he just have a, a group of woke people who are over him? Is all of his advisors just woke people? Because it sounds like he's just sitting in a woke echo chamber producing mass woke information to give to the people. And then you sit in your little your little armchair in your you know living room not understanding what's really happening. And then you believe this rhetoric that, well, you know, black people, they can't do anything for themselves. They need me to break down all of the oppression so that they can at least get a job. Black people can't get driver's licenses or IDs and vote. It's ridiculous. You're done. Sorry, I am. I know you've been hot about it since you saw it. All right. That, my friends, is the tweet of the week. Gwenda says, is he going to start with himself by paying one of those staff workers or missionaries full salary? I doubt it. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's all these people with all these grand ideas that, you know, well, black people can't do this or brown people can't do that. But yet you sitting up in your wing chair. I'm trying to you want. Let me give you my email address. You want to send me a couple months salary Venmo? Yeah. Yeah. Your your Venmo's open because Tim Keller can drop some money in. there. Exactly. And I'm I'm not talking about something with just two zeros. No, I know you got some money. So, but yeah, y'all, it's just, it's really, it's really pathetic to see people with such huge platforms using their influence to, um, to really just degrade Candy's, other people. Candy says black people don't have internet either. You forgot that oh, one. Oh yeah, we don't have internet. And if we did, we don't know how to use it. But then again, we can't get jobs because we can't get IDs. So it wouldn't matter if we had internet or not. Stupid. It's stupid. Like it's, it's literally like nonsensical. It's very degrading. It, it treats it kind of in his effort to talk about justice. He ends up degrading the very people that he's trying to help. I could say so much more, but we need to eat dinner. Okay. I can't even. All right. And I hope nobody decides they want to email me and tell me how wrong I am about Tim Keller. Not today. Not here for you today. All right, friends, that's the end of season three of the show. Can you believe we've been doing this routine for three years? Three years. That's crazy talk. We got a lot of exciting plans in the new year for the show. We're going to enjoy a little hiatus, have a little break, and uh, rest uh, and recharge our batteries. Yeah, we'll be back in January. God willing, we will be back. Yes, we hope. Back and, in January, if the Lord says the same. Yeah, so pray for us, and we will pray for you, and we will see you in the new year. God bless you. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.